Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of January 27th, 2021, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And, uh, you know, I've been promising my um, modest number of listeners that I would uh, get back to the international tip this week. Uh, And, you know, actually, there were a couple of... um, really obscure wars that are going on, underreported conflicts, which have been escalating recently that most people in the West have never even heard of, that I've really been looking forward to bringing your attention to. But uh, nonetheless, it quite clearly is incumbent upon me to discuss the situation in Ukraine. If I don't do it tonight, and then it really does explode in the coming week, I'll regret having not done it. Hoping against hope that it isn't going to explode, obviously. But a review of headlines over the past few days are not comforting, shall we say. Everybody's talking about the big troop buildup along uh, Ukraine's border with Russia, and now um, Russian troops have been put in place in Belarus, also on the Ukrainian border. But that's not all that's going on. Some other headlines from this week that perhaps you missed. Russia to flex muscles with Navy drills involving all its fleets with maneuvers in the Mediterranean, the North Sea, the Sea of Akatsk, and the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Russian Navy announces more major fleet exercises as drill ends with China-Iran. They just held uh, joint naval maneuvers with China and Iran, I believe an unprecedented trilateral naval exercise. And in response, of course, NATO to hold major naval drills in Mediterranean Sea, and simultaneously at the other end of Eurasia, two U.S. aircraft carrier groups now in South China Sea, as Chinese Air Force flies 39 aircraft near Taiwan, that is to say into Taiwan's ADIS, Aerospace Defense Identification Zone. All of this is quite worrisome, obviously. One thing that I'm slightly comforted by is that the Ukrainians themselves don't appear to be nearly so alarmed as the U.S. State Department. And the Ukrainian government actually protested the evacuation of the U.S. Embassy as a premature move. And I've actually been in touch in recent days with an anarchist group in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city after Kiev, which is actually near the Russian border. So you'd think if anybody had reason to worry, it would be them. And uh, they were convinced that uh, the whole thing is being blown out of proportion and it's just a game. A lot of Ukrainians seem to have other things on their mind. Uh, (laughs) It amazes me how little coverage this got in the West. I only know about it because I've been, you know, following uh, what's going on in Ukraine very, very closely and looking at a lot of Ukrainian websites, some of which are in English and using an online translator for the ones that aren't. But the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, was overrun by right-wing protesters on January 25th. They just had their own little version of, uh, of January 6th in Kiev. And the parliament chambers had to be evacuated. And the lawmakers, uh, you know, ushered by security to some safe location. Now, these protesters, ironically, (laughs) don't seem to have been like, you know, really like hardcore 
Trumpian or fascistic right-wing militants. It was kind of an uprising of yuppies. It was young entrepreneurs who were protesting a um, a new law, which is pending in the RADA, which would um, impose taxes and regulations on them, which they are uh, not happy about. Very, very strange. Both the, you know, internal politics of Ukraine <laughs> themselves are, you know, kind of strange. And also, it's a little bit surreal that with all this global focus on um, on on Ukraine, you know, the, the RADA getting overrun by protesters hardly won any coverage at all in the West. Very strange. All right, so there is a certain sense, I'm going to say with, you know, a guarded sense of optimism, that there is a certain sense that, you know, this crisis is really being hyped by the U.S. and the West, you know, to to a certain extent, and maybe things aren't quite as desperate as they seem, and maybe Putin is bluffing and does not actually intend to invade Ukraine. Uh, But I will point out that even if we are to um, assume this, and we certainly may hope that that's the case, um, brinkmanship is still a dangerous game, and events have a habit of taking on a life of their own. And even if it isn't going to be, you know, the, the 1939 model that we've all sort of been, you know, worried about, where, you know, this time Russia, rather than Germany, could instrument some kind of false flag attack on the border, as Germany did in Poland in September of 1939, in order to justify uh, a war of aggression, it could still, you know, be the 1914 model, which, you know, <laughs> hardly more comforting of the great powers just sort of blundering into war in spite of themselves. Either way, it's a very dangerous moment, obviously. And of course, you know, the uh, position of the so-called anti-imperialist left in the United States is just predictably terrible. I mean, where foreign policy is concerned, where foreign affairs, world affairs, issues of war and peace are concerned, you know, the tanky position has just sort of become the, the, the mainstream consensus of the American left. And I've been hearing all of this uh, so-called, as one friend of mine put it, Kremlin-splaining <laughs> about how Russia is really the aggrieved party here. And I have never understood why, you know, so-called anti-war activists have uh, perceived that favoring one of the warmongering parties, and in this particular case, the more aggressive warmongering party, Russia, is somehow considered to be in the interest of peace. And, you know, the left in the West and in the United States has just been so full of illusions about Ukraine for so long. And, you know, we've heard over and over again, you know, from all of the predictable sources out there, Counterpunch and Gray Zone and so on, that the Maidan revolution, which brought down, you know, the corrupt oligarchic Russian-aligned regime of Yanukovych in uh, early 2014, was a Nazi coup, quote-unquote. This is one of those complete fictions, one of those political hallucinations that has just become, you know, um, kind of, you know, an an accepted urban legend (laughs) on on the so-called left, along with um, the benevolent secular dictatorship of Bashar Assad in Syria and the NATO invasion and occupation of Libya, which never happened. But everybody seems to assume that they did. And, you know, segments of the Western left, disturbingly large segments of the Western left, 
have, you know, long you know, practically treated the words Ukrainian and Nazi as synonyms in a manner that really borders on racism and ethnic chauvinism. And it's, again, utterly surreal irony because it's Putin who is now instating a kind of fascistic state in Russia with a crackdown on civil society and opposition voices far more complete than anything that we see in Ukraine now. And yet at the same time, Putin is playing to World War II nostalgia and portraying the Ukrainians as Nazis to win sympathy. Another example of what I call paradoxical fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. The Maidan revolution was not a Nazi coup. That is complete revisionist hallucination. The Maidan revolution was a popular uprising with pro-democracy and pro-European Union political assumptions. Now, there were some, you know, far-right Ukrainian national elements who were on board, who just hated Russia and had no use for the pro-democratic politics. Without a doubt, they were there. There were also social democrats and anarchists and other left-wing elements who were on board. But the mainstream leadership of the movement was not Nazi by any stretch of the imagination. It wanted to get away from the authoritarianism of Yanukovych and Putin and identified with, uh, you know, Western bourgeois democracy, which, you know, is not something that I fetishize, <laughs> but it isn't Nazism. And I'll point out that, you know, the Ukraine's general trajectory since the Maidan revolution has been away from authoritarianism and oligarchism and toward, you know, at least bourgeois democracy and some kind of transparency. During, you know, the same period, the year since 2014, that Russia has become more and more authoritarian and Belarus, forget about it, completely authoritarian. You know, it is Ukraine that since 2014 has seen a Jewish prime minister, Vladimir Groisman, under the government of the former president, Petro Poroshenko, has since 2014 seen peaceful transitions of power and now has a Jewish president. Now, I don't like Vladimir Zelensky. You know, he's kind of a uh, buffoonish celebrity populist, a kind of political animal that there's entirely too many of on the world stage today. But it is a fact that he's of Jewish background and that in May of last year, Zelensky, Ukraine's first Jewish president, attended a formal ceremony opening a synagogue at Babi Yar, the site of a massacre of over 30,000 Jews over a two-day period in September 1941 at the hands of Nazi occupation troops and local collaborationist forces. And over these same years, since 2014, you know, it's Putin and Lukashenko in Belarus that have you know, cracked down on opposition and consolidated their respective dictatorships. And in the case of Belarus, with really brutal repression, with tens of thousands arrested and hundreds subject to torture. And you guys are swallowing Putin's propaganda that Ukraine is a Nazi state? I mean, it's such an absurd double standard. There's all of this, you know, talk on the Western left about these, you know, ugly fascist formations that have, uh, you know, come to the fore 
in Ukraine, such as Right Sector and the Azov Battalion. And they certainly do need to be opposed. And my pals in Ukraine, my you know anarchist and socialist comrades in Ukraine that I've been in touch with, are opposing them. But there's such a double standard on the Western left. All this talk about Right Sector and the Azov Battalion and complete blindness and denialism about the equivalent fascistic formations on the Russian side. The Night Wolves paramilitary group, the Russian Imperial Movement paramilitary formation, the various revived Cossack formations from back in Tsarist times, which have, you know, come out of the woodwork now in the post-Soviet era and have actually been recruited by the Wagner Group, which is like, you know, Russia's equivalent of Blackwater to fight as mercenaries in the Donbass and Syria. Why don't I hear anybody in the Western left talking about that? And this is what comes of getting all of your analysis from, you know, RT and Sputnik and Gray Zone. All right, now I'm just going to take on one of the talking points from the, you know, pro-Putin left that you hear over and over and over again, because it's kind of superficially plausible, and there actually is a certain kernel of truth to it, but it's also something of a distortion, which is that Russia was promised at the end of the Cold War that NATO wouldn't expand into the former Warsaw Pact countries or post-Soviet states as part of a deal for Russia accepting German unification. Now, strictly as a matter of accuracy here, that's not exactly true. There was a very interesting... uh, historical analysis in the November-December issue of Foreign Affairs, the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations, which I subscribe to and read, because if you want to know what the uh, imperial management is thinking, read their own house organ. The piece was entitled Containment Beyond the Cold War, How Washington Lost the Post-Soviet Peace by M.E. Sarot of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Okay, now, first I should say a little bit of something before I go into the facts that he has um, amassed. I should say a little bit something about his own point of view. Anything that you're going to be, uh, you know, reading in foreign affairs is coming from the perspective of the elite global management of the West, of course. But this guy is not particularly a hawk or a hardliner. He was arguing, I mean, you know, there's kind of this retrospectivity which is going on with everybody of what could have happened at the end of the Cold War. That didn't. It's kind of a useless exercise in some ways. But um, he's basically arguing for a so-called Scandinavian option, which is a reference to... um, Norway, which was the only original member of NATO that actually shared a border with the Soviet Union, with Russia. And for that reason, kind of opted for uh, a membership which had certain limitations on it. They were not going to, uh, they committed from the beginning that they would not have foreign troops stationed within their borders and they would not have um, nuclear weapons deployed within their borders. And he's arguing this could have been a, you know, a compromise arrangement for uh, the former uh, East Bloc countries. 
So, yeah, you know, I mean, he's basically a, a supporter of NATO, but certainly he's not, you know, the most bellicose and hardline position that you're going to read in the pages of uh, foreign affairs, not by a long shot. And certainly his research does appear to check out. He's definitely got his ducks in a row in terms of his historical research. And he writes, by the mid-1990s, not one inch, quote-unquote, a phrase originally intended to signal that NATO's jurisdiction would not move one inch eastward, had gained the opposite meaning, that no territory should be off-limits to full membership enlargement, and that there should be no binding limitations on infrastructure of any sort. And uh, then he uh, details all of the uh, sort of jockeying which was going on between the Western powers, particularly the United States, the United Kingdom, and Germany, as to what the uh, proper stance should be toward the status of the former East Bloc countries, which, as you might imagine, uh, saw um, President George H.W. Bush taking the uh, the most bellicose position and saying that, you know, there should be no limitations on, on NATO expanding to the East, with Germany taking the more um, conciliatory position and uh, Thatcher kind of in the middle. So he writes, um, the West German foreign minister, Hans Dietrich Genscher, proposed this option, combine NATO and the Warsaw Pact into a, quote, composite of common collective security, end quote, within which the two alliances, quote, could finally dissipate, end quote. All right, and then he goes on in the next line to say something which was very, very personally vindicating for me. He writes, former dissidents in Central Europe went even further, suggesting the most far-reaching option, their region's complete demilitarization. And, uh, you know, this is personally vindicating to me because these are precisely the people who I was working to support in that period through uh, an activist network uh, here in New York, and it was in some other cities in the United States at that time, late 1980s on into the early to mid-1990s, called Neither East Nor West, which came together to support draft resistors, very critically, Russians who refused to go to the war in Afghanistan, pacifists, anti-nuclear activists, disarmament advocates, etc., who were opposed to their countries being, you know, colonized by either the Warsaw Pact or NATO. And, you know, we tried to give them a voice in the West, particularly, you know, in anti-war circles in the West. And whenever they were imprisoned or harassed or interned in psychiatric institutions, as was all too often the case in the Soviet Union, or had their passports taken away, etc. You know, we and, uh, you know, my gang in neither East nor West, shout out to my former um, radio co-producer on WBAI, Anne-Marie Hendrickson. She was a member of the group. And our departed comrade, Bob McGlynn. We would, uh, you know, go to the... Uh, Soviet or Polish consulate and hold a demonstration on behalf of these um, persecuted dissidents and often actually succeeded in getting the, uh, you know, the pressure on them lifted. So when Emmy Sarot writes about the former dissidents in the immediate post-Cold War period <clears throat> who were calling for the region's complete demilitarization, Eastern Europe, Eastern and Central Europe's complete demilitarization, he's talking about my friends 
and the people that I was trying to organize support for in this period. To continue with the text, all of these options were anathema to Bush, who most certainly did not want NATO to dissipate or the United States' leading role in European security to disappear with it. In 1990, however, Gorbachev still had leverage. Thanks to the Soviet victory over the Nazis in World War II, Moscow had hundreds of thousands of troops in East Germany and the legal right to keep them there. Germany couldn't reunify without Gorbachev's permission. Then he goes on to uh, detail all of the, uh, you know, shuttle diplomacy, which was then being taken by uh, Secretary of State James Baker. And in February 1990, Baker, out of the loop with evolving White House thinking because of his extended travels, unwittingly overstepped his bounds by offering Gorbachev a now infamous hypothetical bargain that echoed Geinscher's thinking, not Bush's. What if Gorbachev allowed reunification to proceed and Washington agreed, quote, that NATO's jurisdiction would not shift one inch eastward from its present position, end quote. The secretary soon had to drop this wording, however, after realizing that it was inconsistent with Bush's preferences. Within a couple of weeks, Baker was having to advise allies quietly that his use of, quote, the term NATO jurisdiction was creating some confusion and should probably be avoided in the future, end quote. It was a sign that NATO would shift eastward after all, with a special status for Eastern Germany, which ultimately would become Europe's only guaranteed nuclear-free zone. And this is a reference to the commitment which was made and actually signed into treaty by Germany and the other great powers that no nuclear weapons or foreign forces would be stationed in the territory that had been East Germany. So this was, you know, the one example of the kind of uh, solution that Sarot thinks should have been implemented. And the former East Germany remains Europe's only nuclear-free zone. To continue with the text, through this move to limit NATO infrastructure in eastern Germany by playing to Moscow's economic weakness, Bush shifted Gorbachev's attention away from the removal of nuclear weapons in the western territory and toward economic inducements to allow German reunification. In exchange for billions of Deutschmarks and various forms of support, the Soviet leader ultimately allowed Germany to reunify and its eastern regions to join NATO on October 3, 1990, thus permitting the alliance to expand across the old Cold War front line. That's all I'll read from the text, but a, um, a good informative piece by M.E. Sarot, Containment Beyond the Cold War, How Washington Lost the Post-Soviet Peace in the uh, November-December 2021 issue of Foreign Affairs. So no, there never actually was any binding commitment made to Russia that NATO would not expand into the former East Bloc. I mean, yeah, we all would have liked to have 
Seemed like commitment made, but you can't rewrite history. It wasn't made. So please stop pretending that it was. And meanwhile, why don't we uh, take a look at the actual binding commitments that were made to Ukraine during this period, which nobody wants to talk about. Nobody on the left wants to talk about. But you can believe that they're talking about it in Ukraine right now. They're talking about it a lot. The 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances. Okay, before I actually read the text of the uh, Budapest Memorandum, perhaps I should correct myself because um, technically it was not binding. It was formalized in a way that, uh, you know, James Baker's assurances to Gorbachev never were. It was actually committed to writing, but it was a uh, an agreement rather than a treaty. And um, it uses the term assurances rather than guarantees, which is an important distinction in diplomatic terms. So the memorandum is not a formal treaty, but a statement of shared principles. So not actually binding. But what it was all about was that uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were almost 2,000 Soviet nuclear warheads that were left on Ukraine's territory. And under the Budapest Memorandum, Ukraine agreed to give them up, to turn them over to Russia, and to join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And in exchange, it won these assurances to use the diplomatically correct term here, <clears throat> from the signatories of the Budapest Memorandum, which uh, were Russia, the uh, United Kingdom, United States, and a couple of others. And they wrote that um, <clears throat> the signatories, quote, reaffirm their commitment to Ukraine to respect the independence and sovereignty of the existing borders of Ukraine and reaffirm their obligation to refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine. And none of their weapons will ever be used against Ukraine except in self-defense or otherwise in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations. And the signatories further reaffirm their commitment to seek immediate United Nations Security Council action to provide assistance to Ukraine as a non-nuclear weapon state party to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons if Ukraine should become a victim of an act of aggression or an object of a threat of aggression in which nuclear weapons are used. End quote. Okay, now the current situation, thankfully, falls short, or we may hope <clears throat> that it falls short of an imminent threat of use of nuclear weapons. But not that that makes it okay. And certainly, Russia has been, since 2014, in clear violation of the Budapest Memorandum through its unilateral and illegal annexation of the Crimean Peninsula and sponsoring of separatist rebel enclaves, or we may say de facto annexation, of the Donbass region in Ukraine's east. So for all of this focus on the supposed guarantees that were made to Russia that NATO would not expand, 
back in the early 1990s. I want to know why nobody is talking about the Budapest Memorandum. That is to say, nobody in the uh, Western left. Certainly in Ukraine, everybody's talking about it. Now, if you want to argue that NATO's expansion into the former East Bloc represents a threat to Russia, well, okay. But to go further and argue that that somehow justifies Russia's amassing of hundreds of thousands of troops on Ukraine's borders, and at a minimum, using the implicit threat of an invasion to try to exact concessions from the rival imperial bloc, well, I'm going to blow the dust off a particular quote that was being aggressively circulated in anti-war circles in the West 20 years ago in the uh, immediate prelude to W. Bush's invasion of Iraq, with the justifications now, of course, proved to have been bogus, that Saddam Hussein was arming with weapons of mass destruction, blah, blah, blah. And this quote that was being circulated on the internet very aggressively in that context back in 2002, 2003, reads as follows, quote, Our position is that whatever grievances a nation may have, however objectionable it finds the status quo, aggressive warfare is an illegal means for settling those grievances or for altering those conditions, end quote. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, U.S. prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials, in his opening statement to the tribunal, November 21st, 1945. And if that principle, which he articulated, obviously, in reference to Hitler's wars of aggression, applied as a legitimate analogy to W. Bush and his designs on Iraq in 2003, think about how it could also apply to Vladimir Putin and his designs on Ukraine at this moment. And you might also want to stop and think about why the government of Ukraine, a country which suffered terribly under the Russians, first under the Tsars and then under the Soviets, might be so eager to join NATO. And I submit that the reasons are essentially the same, essentially similar to the reasons that Cuba in 1962 was eager to have Russian nuclear missiles on its territory. Because when you're in the backyard of an imperial power that has been subjugating you for generations, there's a natural tendency to look to the rival imperial power for protection. And I'm not sure that it really makes any difference in terms of the principle involved here that Cuba was socialist and that Ukraine is aggressively embracing capitalism. And in fact, I'll go further than that. It was because the United States was capitalist that the Cuban leadership embraced socialism. And it was because the Soviet Union ruled in the name of socialism that the Ukrainian leadership is now aggressively embracing capitalism. Now, I continue to look, you know, just as I did all those years ago, 30 years ago, in the Cold War endgame, for neither nor voices, so to speak, voices of the independent left in Ukraine and the greater Eastern European region, including Russia, which reject the power blocks around NATO and Moscow alike. 
And I just recently posted to uh, my website, countervortex.org, a statement of Ukrainian socialists entitled, Time for International Anti-War Solidarity, from a Kiev-based group calling themselves Social Movement, a formation of the democratic left opposition in Ukraine, which has been working to oppose the so-called decommunization policy that is selling off all land and state assets to oligarchs. And in this statement that I, uh, that I posted from them, which was first issued on January 10th on uh, their own website, which is rev.org.ua, R-E-V as in revolution, .org.ua as in Ukraine. They are calling for United Nations peacekeepers for the Donbass region, but they say nothing, not a word, looking to succor from the United States or NATO. But I'm going to read the uh, just the two opening paragraphs, very brief paragraphs, from this statement, the Kremlin has ordered the Russian army to the Ukrainian borders and is threatening to intervene if the U.S., NATO, and Ukraine do not fulfill its demands. We, the Ukrainian socialists, call on the international left to condemn the imperialist policies of the Russian government and to show solidarity with people who have suffered from the war that has lasted almost eight years and who may suffer from a new one. After the collapse of the USSR, only one superpower remained in the world, the United States. But nothing lasts forever, and now its hegemony is declining. U.S. interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq brought catastrophic wars to the peoples of those countries and ended in disgrace for the United States. Unfortunately, the decline of American imperialism has been accompanied not by the emergence of a more democratic world order, but by the rise of other imperialist predators, fundamentalist and nationalist movements. Under these circumstances, the international left, accustomed to fighting only against Western imperialism, should reconsider its strategy End quote. And I'm going to uh, end here by reading a, a series of quotes from one Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, something I do not often do <laughs> because I'm not a Leninist, but uh, I'm going to now because it's extremely historically instructive. Four quotes from Vladimir Lenin, forthwith. Quote number one, quote, what Ireland was for England, Ukraine has become for Russia, exploited in the extreme and getting nothing in return. The interests of the world proletariat in general, and the Russian proletariat in particular, require that Ukraine regains its state independence. Unfortunately, some of our comrades have become imperial Russian patriots. We Muscovites are enslaved, not only because we allow ourselves to be oppressed, but because our passivity allows others to be oppressed, which is not in our interests. End quote. Vladimir Lenin, speech on the Ukrainian question, delivered in Zurich in 1914. Quote number two, 
the fact that the struggle for national liberation against one imperialist power may, under certain circumstances, be utilized by another great power in its equally imperialist interests should have no weight in inducing social democracy to renounce its recognition of the right of nations to self-determination. End quote. Vladimir Lenin, The Socialist Revolution and the Right of Nations to Self-Determination, 1916. Quote number three. If Finland, Poland, or Ukraine secede from Russia, there is nothing bad in that. What is wrong with it? Anyone who says that is a chauvinist. One must be mad to continue with Tsar Nicholas's policy. Didn't Norway secede from Sweden? Alexander I and Napoleon once bartered nations. The Tsars once traded Poland. Are we to continue this policy of the Tsars? This is a repudiation of the tactics of internationalism. This is chauvinism at its worst. What is wrong with Finland seceding? The proletariat cannot use force because it must not prevent the peoples from obtaining their freedom. Only when the socialist revolution has become a reality and not a method will the slogan down with frontiers be a correct slogan. V.I. Lenin, speech on the national question, 1917. Okay, and this last one is in a very stilted bureaucratic prose, because he's actually commenting on Clause 9 of the 1913 program of the Conference of Russian Marxists. Important context for understanding the quote that I'm about to read. But the principles that he uh, elucidates here shed a lot of light on the current situation. Quote, Some people profess to see a contradiction in the fact that while point four of this resolution, which recognizes the right to self-determination and secession, seems to concede the maximum to nationalism. In reality, the recognition of the right of all nations to self-determination implies the maximum of democracy and the minimum of nationalism. Point five warns the workers against the nationalist slogans of the bourgeoisie of any nation, and demands the unity and amalgamation of the workers of all nations in internationally united proletarian organizations. But this is a contradiction only for extremely shallow minds, which, for instance, cannot grasp why the unity and class solidarity of the Swedish and the Norwegian proletariat gained when the Swedish workers upheld Norway's freedom to secede and form an independent state, unquote. Once again, Vladimir Lenin commenting on the 1913 program of the Conference of Russian Marxists in an essay entitled The Right of Nations to Self-Determination, written in 1914. All right, now I should point out here that, uh, you know, Leninism in actual practice was very different. <laughs> Um, and Stalinism, forget about it. Obviously, those principles were completely betrayed under Stalin. But the principles which are articulated by Lenin 
in the passages that I just read, should shed an uneasy light, shall we say, on the current situation vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine for a lot of Western leftists. So before you wrap yourself in the red flag in support of Putin's warmongering neo-imperialist and great Russian chauvinist policies, you might want to think about it a little. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.